Welcome to Booked Where Two Guys Tell You About the Books They're Reading. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snedden. Uh, we're doing another book that's two books in a row, Rob, just to, for anybody who's keeping score. Yeah. <laughs> we, we haven't done a page <laughs> count update. You know what? It's okay. <laughs> we need to do one. More embarrassing than anything at this point. Yeah, I get the feeling the rest of the year is probably not going to hold a lot in the way of books either. So... Um, <laughs> I'm telling you, we're gonna New Year's resolution ourselves, though the year-end episode. We're gonna, we're gonna, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about it then. But we did read a book this week, and that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, we're reviewing Frank Bill's The Savage, which came out on the 14th, just uh, five days before we're um, doing this review. Now, to be fair, uh, we did get an advanced copy sent to us, digital copy, but scheduling and stuff and whatever got in the way of us getting this out when we really wanted to which was like around tuesday so yeah we're a little probably like a week behind where we wanted to be right about yeah yeah uh frank bill no stranger to this podcast uh we three different times we have had him or a book of his on so uh rob was kind enough to call through the archives and pull this information up all the way back in 2012 uh five years ago you know, to the week, uh, we were at uh, Noir at the Bar live reading where he read from this book, The Savage. Uh, <laughs> that was episode 116, five years ago. Uh, episode 139, we reviewed Donnie Brook, which was published. Uh, that episode was put up uh, on, in March of 2013. And then we interviewed him uh, almost a month after that in April of 2013. And it has been radio silence from Frank Bill since then. <laughs> um. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a long time. And so like, uh, this is going to be one of those situations and we'll read the, the, the synopsis in a, in a minute, um, to kind of give you context. Um, but, uh, this is one of those situations where we had, uh, access or exposure to something far, far, far before it was actually put into print. And so like they get, got me all nostalgic about going back. So I listened, I re-listened to, all the episodes that Livia's just mentioned and just kind of like remembered like, Oh man, this is, this is the finished product of what this dude was talking about five years ago. So, uh, it's kind of neat if you ask me. So what did he read from the savage that back then? Like what part? Uh, so there's a chapter early in the book where, uh, Van Dorn, the main character, um, and his dad are going around, uh, trying to, um, pull out like the, the copper wiring and stuff from houses. Mm-hmm. He read that like uh like not the entire chapter but like the the meat of that chapter so um it was it didn't even it occurred to me when i was reading it that like oh yeah he read this um but it seemed so different than what i remembered that i had to go back and listen to it and it actually was about exactly what he had in the book so uh it's interesting to see the differences or to to look for the differences and realize oh shit we really had like a full chapter of this book five years ago i mean before it's its predecessor came out right before the prequel to this came out yeah this was uh because donnie brook came out in early 2013 so this was he he basically said i don't want to read something from donnie brook because you know you'll have it soon enough so here's what's coming after it and he even called it like he didn't call it a sequel he said the Mm follow-up so even then he said it was a follow-up Going into reading this book, I didn't remember any of that stuff because it was so long right. ago. Okay. I, had, <laughs> I had no expectation that there was going to be a connection to Donnybrook at all um, because I don't read synopsises. synopses. Um, 
had I, maybe I would have a different approach. You want me to read the synopsis? Um, <laughs> let's first tell people a little <laughs> bit about Frank Bill, because this is, uh, I, I went back and listened to the Donnie Brook review, and, and, yeah. and this still holds true nearly five years later. Best <laughs> author bio ever. Frank Bill is the author of the novel Donnie Brook and the story collection Crimes in Southern Indiana, named one of GQ's favorite books of 2011 and a Daily Beast best debut of 2011. Yeah, that dude's been frozen in ice for for five years now. No, but it, I'm telling you, of all, it's just a nice, <laughs> short, easy author bio. It's great. It's yeah, this is exactly what I want from an author bio. So here's the synopsis of the book that we're talking about in a weird way already. <clears throat> Frank Bill's America has always been stark and violent. In his new novel, he takes things one step further. The dollar has failed. The grid is wiped out. Van Dorn is 18 and running solo, dodging the bloodthirsty hordes and militias that have emerged since the country went haywire. His dead father's voice rings in his head as Van Dorn sets his sights not just on survival, but also on an old-fashioned sense of justice. Meanwhile, a leader has risen among the gangs, and around him swirls the cast of brawlers from Donnybrook with their own brutal sense of right and wrong, of loyalty and justice through strength. So this is not the distant post-apocalyptic future. This is tomorrow in a world Bill has already introduced us to. Now he raises the stakes and turns his shotgun pros on our addiction to technology, the values and skills we've lost in the process, and what happens when the last systems of morality and society collapse. The Savage presents a bone-chilling vision of America where power is the only currency and nothing guarantees survival. And it presents Bill at his most ambitious, most eloquent, most powerful. I also um, had no recollection that this was a uh, a, a sequel to, to Donnie Brook, um, and then it gets mentioned yeah, pretty early out of the book. The that they meet, um, and his name eludes me. McGill, McGill was it the the guy who ran the Donnie yeah. Brook in a flashback? And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. There's a little bit of a character crossover. Well. Belmont we'll, McGill, yeah, we'll get to that, but it's um, it it is a it is a it is definitely a sequel, but the world has changed, as indicated in the synopsis. So we know he's been writing this for a few years, and and, and maybe reality is coming to set it. I don't know. We'll see if the dollar completely fails, but it is it's not a distant post-apocalyptic future. He's right, but it, it really has come down to the dollar has lost all of its value. And of course, if money has lost its value, other things start to disappear like services and human decency and, and a variety of other things. So we're pushed forward. What would you say? I don't even know if there was an actual timestamp, but I'd have to say it's like four or five years, right? Yeah, I think that um, if you do the math on it, like, so Donnybrook takes place in present time for when it came out, which would have been like 2012, 13. Um, this book takes place, um, I think, so in Donnybrook, the characters that we see here, like Van Dorn especially, was was in his teen years. And, and in this book, he's in his early 20s. So uh, from late teens, early 20s, yeah, it would have been like four or five years difference. So probably like now now ish not like in the future sometime so the setting is uh is very familiar um we're actually in in southern indiana 
and, and things like businesses still exist to a certain extent. And of course, bars are around and there's, you know, uh, uh, like convenience store type places, but, but really everybody's kind of fending for, for themselves. And I guess we could take a step back and kind of talk about the structure of this book. It's told in three parts. Those three parts um, are very definitive within themselves, I think. At least part one is very well defined as a, I don't want to say a separate story, but but it has its own path. And then part two kind of starts to intermingle, introduces a whole new storyline, intermingles some of the storyline from part one. And then part three, by far the shortest, is, you know, kind of where it all culminates in the beginning of the book, we're introduced to a character, Van Dorn, who we had already mentioned is, is in his very early 20s. Um, and, and he has been trekking across the land um, with his father, Horace, who has been teaching him survivalist ways, not, not just like, you know, how to skin a rabbit or, or trap and skin a rabbit, but like how to tear out copper piping out of places so that then you could turn in for money and stuff as Horace had seen the future coming and knew that... Uh, Trying to hold down a regular job and amassing money wasn't the right way to do things. So they, they're kind of like nomadic travelers who, I don't want to say they steal. I mean, I guess technically they're stealing, but they find like abandoned homes and, and that's how they, they earn their living for a while. Yeah. And it's um, interesting. So the first part, I guess, um, to kind of dig into like the structure of the, of the book a little bit more, the first part is told um, in a then and now fashion. So we'll have a chapter of van dorn in the in the present day and then like the next chapter will be um van dorn and his father when he was younger uh his father teaching him all this stuff so we see like um him using these skills in the present day and then we go back to him being him learning these skills and like how his life experiences are kind of like impacting his his actions in the current day um and so it's kind of weird because like uh it took me a little while to get into this the first chapter the absolute first thing that you read is in the present day and it's this like obviously post-apocalyptic world where like a guy is afraid to like um van dorn is afraid to to skin his deer that he killed and uh and in, out in public because people might come and kill him and so you're you're immediately kind of dropped into this like really serious freaky scary world um and then it kind of dips back a few years and you see oh when he was a kid this is more of a normal kind of what we would expect from frank bill crimes in southern indiana type of thing and then cut to um you know back to another chapter where all hell is breaking loose but yeah so like the general idea is um his dad was like a tradesman who fell on hard times when basically the world fell on hard times. And it's worth noting that Frank Bill wrote this in like 2009. So right after the entire housing market collapsed. And so like the, he was writing the reality of the time. Um, and, uh, and, and so he's his Van Van Dorn in the, in the, in the then chapters is kind of gaining all this wisdom from his father, but like, in the middle of, of just the misery of, of nobody has any money or jobs and, and like they're fighting to survive and they don't get food from the store. They fish, you know, where they, where they can and stuff like that, because they just don't, you know, everything's falling apart. Correct. Um, I think it's fair to say, cause we, we, we get this very, very early on the now portions of part one are minus Horace. Horace has uh, Horace is deceased now. So Van Dorn really is is making his way on his own, but often drawing. And the story's told in that type, right? Like he comes across a situation 
and then there's a flashback to something, uh, a situation he was in with his dad. And, and through that, you kind of see how he makes his decisions in resolving whatever the situation at hand is. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. So he winds up finding the catalyst for, for his story in this book is, uh, as Rob had mentioned, he's afraid of being discovered. He is discovered. He winds up uh, dispatching some, uh, some guys who are wanting to do him some harm. But basically, uh, witnesses a girl that he was friendly with when they had lived there originally. They had lived there, and then they had kind of gone nomad and, and traveled around, and then they had come back. But he sees uh, this girl, the Sheldon girl, who uh, he kind of had a thing for. And she has been herded into some type of vehicle along with other women and children and hauled away. So he now uh, has to decide if, if that's something he wants to pursue. And, and of course, I'm sure I kind of gave that away and it wouldn't be a surprise to most readers that we know he is going to pursue finding her. Yeah. And so the first, I would say the first part of the book is easily 40% of it or so. And um, it's all about this like then and now um, focusing really a lot on Van Dorn, but it also encompasses a massive uh, list of characters so many that like I have listed in our in our notes that we have maybe a dozen maybe a, a maybe a little more than a dozen characters that are like main important characters of the book and that's leaving out like 10 times as many characters that I just you know I didn't think were big enough to name um, and and so it's it's you know the people that we're we're seeing Van Doren especially um fighting for survival and trying to figure out um, how to, you know, get along in this new kind of savage. Haha, there's the name of the book, the savage uh, world. And then bringing in slowly the characters that we, we learned of from Donnybrook and seeing what they're up to in this post-apocalyptic tomorrow-ish time. And, uh, everybody's got a bone to pick with someone. Plus they all just want to kill a bunch of people, I guess is one thing I'd say really quickly. about. <laughs> As we move into part two, um, part two does narrow its focus a little bit um, from kind of introducing these characters. And really that follows two characters. Um, Kato. Yes. Like the salami. Uh, he is the son of Manny. Uh, Manny was, uh, I, I would say a, a bad guy uh, from Donnybrook who was, uh, I mean, if you haven't read Donnie Brookhead, there's probably be some spoilers here. <laughs> he uh, he was killed at the end of Donnybrook, and Kato's motivation is to find the man. He knows who killed his father. So he has uh, come up uh, through, through Mexico with a gang of people, and, and he is creating a, a larger army of drug-dependent um, children, youngsters, I guess, uh, to, to, to be his army and he's kind of gaining territory and, and, and dispatching foes as he comes through. But really he's looking for Chainsaw Angus, who was definitely one of the focal points of Donnybrook. Um, Donnybrook uh, towards the end saw Chainsaw Angus kill Manny. So we have their two stories in a then and now kind of situation. We see the flip side of the Van Doren situation where Kato is learning things from his, you know, kind of a drug Lord father um, while Chainsaw Angus is learning things from Fu, who collectively I think was our favorite character from Donnie Brook, if I remember correctly. Yeah, for sure. 
so that's yeah there's that and then there's um so one of the big characters we mentioned earlier belmont mcgill was the guy who was um in charge of donnie the the donnie brook event in the book donnie brook and um his daughter scar um is is one of the more prominent characters in this book who has a bone to pick uh with um uh, angus as well because chainsaw angus is the guy that killed her dad, Belmont McGill, at the end of, of Donnie Brook. Spoilers again. The book came out fucking like five years ago, so we're not responsible for that. Um, and, you know, like, so, and, and, and there's other things as well. So um, it, what it kind of comes out to is that there's like these people who have grouped together to survive. There's um, Kato with his, um, his group of people is just like, uh, you know, the drugged out, kids that Livius was mentioning before then you've got um alcorn has he's like a he's a white supremacist apparently i don't know how to spell white supremacist Livius said to fix that in our thing um but he has a he calls his group the mutts and then you know scar has got her own group of people but basically like if you're on your own the chances of survival in this in this you know future world or whatever is not very likely so these bands of these groups are banding together and um uh, one of the things that emerges is is this kind of I'm trying to think of the best way to say it. It's almost like gladiator style arena fighting, um, and the and like the people who are the fighters uh, represent the, some of these different groups of people, and whoever wins their group gets more territory. So like there emerges this kind of weird territory commerce based on like bare knuckle fighting. And, um, yeah, it's just all, it's all really bad and it's just moving toward, you know, that this is not a sustainable situation and something's gotta, it's gotta come to a head at some point, which I think is pretty much what, uh, the third act is going to encompass. And we're probably not going to talk about it because we're probably dancing really close to the edge of a lot of spoilers already. Correct. Um, I will say that. The, the groups that that have emerged and, and all the groups i mean I, i'll even throw you know just van dorn you know as a soul just him by himself you kind of remind me i know you're not a big fan but think the walking dead without any zombies so kind of this mm. you know any group you run into is not somebody who's going to help you it is you you are running into a rival group if you know their rivals or not everybody's a rival so mm-hmm. there really are no um, there are no alliances, I guess I should say. Each individual group is only out for its best interest. Now you've got Kato, who's just wiping everybody out. And then you've got these other groups, as you had kind of alluded to, the bare knuckles fighting. Like they have a system, right? but they're still antagonists, right? They, they, they're still Yeah, it's still brutal. Because they have a system on how to divide up food and land. It does not make them friendly. Uh, they, they hate each other just as much as any of the other groups do. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, Story-wise, the only other thing I can say about this story is um, it's really brutal. Like, really brutal. Um, I'm going to draw from from a part, because it's pretty early on in in the book, and I'm I'm not, I have a whole, like, section highlighted out, but I'm I'm not going to cover it um, word for word. But, I mean, there's a, a, a young family that's all that's all i'm gonna say about it who has turned to cannibalism and not just cannibalism like if someone dies they eat them like where they lure people in to essentially to a trap 
to eat them. And that's how they, they gain sustenance. Yeah. It's terrible. And some of the things described in that section are just bone, bone chilling. Like it, it's really, really rough stuff. Actually, there's a quote that I highlighted specifically because of how like succinctly it describes the book. Um, and this is eh, kind of is about the first 25% of the book. What a grisly existence Van Dorn thought one part old West, two parts rural apocalypse. That is a beautiful, I mean, that pretty much that is a beautiful one. Yeah. Yep. Nailed it. Um, I, I don't know. We're not, I, I don't know. How, how much did you do for quotes? You have a lot of quotes. No, um, I just I highlighted a handful of things that uh, I like. I highlighted the word anthropophagy because it took me on a little like, you know, <laughs> anthropophagites. Yes. Uh, but otherwise, no, I just I, I didn't do much quoting because like Frank Bill has such a um, I don't know. The whole thing has that grit to it. And I, I, I felt like it was all. There wasn't something that necessarily stood out over all the other good stuff. Um, kind of like you, I, I do have one, two that I want to cover. One because it's just so true, and two, um, this this one, which I thought was also just super super gross. Around the side of the flaming home, the female's scalp was completely removed, hanging down the back of her neck like a laceless tennis shoe's tongue pulled away from the insole. <laughs> the other one is a bit of fatherly advice that Horace tells Dorn. Um, we didn't talk about the widow at all, but this is someone who they encounter and Horace enters into a relationship with her. We don't get really deep in the relationship because it's in the then part of the book. But uh, Horace and the widow have a little bit of a, an argument. So Horace is imparting this sage wisdom to his to his son. They get goddamn hormonal, Horace told Dorn. Wait one day. You'll see what I speak of. They trap you with their tools, cooking, cuddling, and that warm between their nethers. Truer words, man. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, Frank Bell has spoken gospel here. So, if I, learn, if I learned one thing from this book, or if I learned two things from this book, one is that you can get by on human meat for a long time, and this is the other one. I mean, what else do you need to know, really? <laughs> well, there is the other thing I had noticed. That whole uh, system where... Um, he's learning from his grandfather, I think, about how to uh, how to break a dog. He has that hunting dog, yeah, that chased after yeah. the wrong, chased after a deer instead of a, I think it was a raccoon or a possum. Yeah, raccoon. Oh, I have to imagine that 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 is that is probably an actual training tactic. So I'll I'll get into it a little bit. Um, as I had mentioned, <laughs> he got he got a new dog, a pup. He's training the pup to to track. I think it was raccoons or squirrels or whatever. At any rate. The, the dog gets the scent of a deer and chases off after the deer. This guy yells at it, uh, tries to stop at any rate. He finally winds up killing this deer. And that, this is the line I actually have highlighted. Remind me of this. Drug him to the dead deer's ass where he'd split it. Lifted the hind leg, buried Sam's face in it. Sam is the dog. Then lowered the leg. And he would keep the dog's face in there until the dog essentially stopped breathing. And then hope to be able to kind of coax it back to life, you know, so that anytime it smelled that scent, it would run the other way. So it would only chase after what it was taught to chase after. But it's a really grueling couple of paragraphs to read that. Yeah, that was rough um, and weird. Very weird and very rough. Rough and weird. Um, one more thing I want to talk about um, before we go over to spoiler talk for our Patreon subscribers 
Um, did you have a trouble? Did you have any trouble with the language in this book? So yeah, I guess it, it bears mentioning the people talk weird in this, um, and I, I don't know exactly what to attribute it to because it's not a regional thing and it's not a time-based thing. I think it was just a weird style choice. Like I can't justify it based on any of the criteria that exists in the book, if that makes sense. Right. Cause originally when I started going across, I was like, well, how many years in the future is this? Like were these people, <laughs> right. you know, but were these people all taught by like, you know, regional pastors or something to speak? You know what I mean? It's, it's cause it was really weird. And this is even, even from, you know, significantly later in the book, but I'd bark one as an example. Um, this woman is Angus and this woman, whatever. At any rate, he's trying to get her out of a place. And the line is, she jerked her face and screamed, don't lay your prints upon my skin. And it yeah. just, every time I, yeah, dialogue was really, really weird. Yeah. And it actually kind of, like I said, the first chapter is in the, in the, post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic time and that language really threw me off at first i was like what what am i getting myself into um but it's consistent in the then and now times like the flashbacks and mm-hmm. present day so it's not a time-based thing um i think and now my suspicion because we we know that frank writes you know very home-based kind of stuff I just want to kind of hang out in court in Indiana and talk to people and be like, <laughs> don't touch my nethers and see what they say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rob, are you under the impression that in court in Indiana, people are going to want to touch your nethers? Well, that what's <laughs> well, that was the first thing that came to mind. I'd probably have like several different things to say, not just yeah, nethers you, focused. You, yeah. You've got a better chance of hearing some woman scream at you. Don't lay your prints upon my skin. than then. <laughs> Wow. being able to utter the nethers, the nethers thing. So, all right. All right. We're going to head over to spoiler talk, patreon.com slash booked all Patreon contributors at any level. Um, get spoiler talk, which is, uh, more and more nowadays, it seems like. So, uh, if you've, uh, if you've already read the savage, it's a good time to go over there and kind of hear some of our thoughts that are a little more spoilery. Uh, if you plan on never reading the savage, you can then also go over there and hear, some more spoilery talk <laughs> about it, I guess. So um, we'll be back in just a few moments. All right. We just got done with spoiler talk. So we might as well just jump right into our uh, wrap ups. Do you want to go first, Livius? Yeah. Um, it's tough. Cause I got to remember that a lot of people aren't going to hear what we said in spoiler talk. Um, one of the really kind of uh, terrific things about this book was the fact that we saw a sequel, but a sequel Oddly enough, after the world has kind of changed, which Rob and I were challenging each other a little bit to think of other instances where we've seen a sequel on, on such a different um, backdrop, um, you know, using the same characters in the same town, you know, but really moving the rest of the world forward a whole lot. So I think it was great that, that that's the, the way that Frank wanted to go. It, the book was brutal. The storylines um, were, were great. Um, I really liked that we really were seeing the 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 teachings from the father to the son, both on on Kato's part and on Van Dorn's part, and even on Chainsaw Angus's part um, a, a little bit. Maybe not his father, but but definitely somebody who was able to impact and change his life. And we would see uh, some of that learning too. So I think a lot of it had to do 
um, less with fighting and brutality and a little more like the things we, we learn from, from those that, that care about us and, and then how we choose to make our decisions based on, on that information. Um, overall, my only issue with this was the dialogue. I, I, had, I had trouble. The dialogue was taking me out of the story. And as we, we mentioned a little bit, uh, you know, a little while ago, it, it was there's I can't really find the reason for it. So it was consistent. Um, it, it, it just, it, it stuck out and it stuck out enough that I stumbled on it, um, as I came across it. But other than that, I think this book is really, really great. Um, so I'm going to ding it for dialogue and still give it uh, four and a half stars. All right. Um, as I stated, I, I wasn't aware going into the reading this book that it was the direct follow-up to Donnybrook, um, uh, because time has passed since, um, kind of, we were in the in the Frank bill loop, if there is new, new stuff coming out from Frank. Um, and so going into it, like I said, I just didn't know what to expect in the moment I had kind of a, uh, an inkling, um, I corrected myself and I read this, the synopsis and, and then it was like a whole different story. Uh, that being said, I agree with Livius. The dialogue was unexpected. And, uh, at first it was, it was, it was a hurdle that I had to overcome. But after that, um, I, assimilated fine with it and i didn't take it didn't really take me out of the story too much um but the goddamn characters were all so cool um van dorn being our protagonist uh just watching him grow up in in just non-stop adversity and seeing you know what he did with that was great um and and there was definitely a theme to the characters of this book it was all about um like the strong characters in the book were all about, you know, being self-sufficient and being uh, basically possessing of qualities that, you know, maybe might be absent in the, you know, the coddled millennials that we, that were, you know, the generation that we're growing up with right now, um, being able to live off the land and fix things and, you know, fend for yourself and, and make tough decisions and fail. You know, it's got themes of a lot of things that just people can't handle these days. And I, and I and I think that that's kind of an overarching kind of message is like, you know, there's a bunch of little bitches in the world and who would survive, you know, and who would end up in a cage. So I thought the, the commentary was great. And uh, especially with everything that's going on nowadays, as much as Donnybrook was relevant to the uh, housing collapse when that book was written. Um, the militias and and the you know anti-government kind of sentiment is kind of ringing true for for what I'm seeing going on right now. So um, it's poignant, and and uh, I think that as long as you can get over how just brutal the violence in the book is, you can actually see a good message, and you can see um, good people in it. But it is very, very brutal and very, very violent. So um, it, it's it's an interesting book. I, I really enjoyed reading it. I can handle that type of brutality, but there was definitely like and Livius, I've always said, is very desensitized to violence in fiction in general. And I'm sure that there were points in the book where he was even had to kind of pause and be like, oh, oh, God. So um it, if anybody's considering reading this book, just take that in, into account 
near choices. Otherwise, Bill just nailed it out of the park. I think he did a great job with this. And so I'm going to give it a straight up five star rating. Excellent. Two things to comment on. Yes, to what you said about me kind of cringing at some parts in this book. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, The second thing is, you're like, these millennials today, they don't know, they don't whatever. Motherfucker, you and I would be in those cages. You know that, right? Neither one of us is cut out for surviving anything other than like maybe a couple hours without the internet. Maybe. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I, I saw myself immediately saw myself in those cages for sure. Um, but uh, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm not a millennial. No, that's that, yes. You are. You are <laughs> not a millennial. That I can agree with that. So, I'm really glad we decided to review this book. Um, I didn't say it during the the during the review, so I'm going to say it now. I had a little trouble getting into it at first too, which is what you had mentioned. Um, but but that that dissipated um pretty quickly. But yeah, it was yeah. very disorienting at first, I guess is probably the right way to. Yeah. I mean, like, cause Frank Bill and the stuff that we've read so far, crimes in Southern Indiana and Donnybrook, it has a very, um, the, the, the way that he writes crime is easy to read. It's very like comfortable. And, and this, with the dialogue being unexpected, if you'd read Frank Bill before and you're going into this, you're like, Whoa, what's going on? Like it definitely like it trips you up. Yep. Yeah. I don't. Uh, I don't have a whole lot else this week, man. It's. Uh, you got anything? Um. Well, I, can we before we jump off of of Frank Bill? There in the Donnybrook movie is in production as we speak. Yeah, it is, and that looks excellent. Um. I, I mean, from from like the stills I've seen of the actors and stuff, I'm very much looking forward to that. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't know exactly the the scale of it i know that it's it's listed on imdb and it sounds like it's got some recognizable uh names in it um and i'm pretty excited for frank for being at least present for some of the production of the movie and stuff because i know how that how good that's got to feel to see like something you wrote um adapted into a new new medium um but yeah he's been posting pictures from the set he's been posting pictures of um, like the uh, the character, the excuse me, the actor who who plays Chainsaw Angus, and he's really excited about it. So um, all I'm hoping is that it turns into a movie that we get to see sometime relatively soon, not like four four years from now. <laughs> well, I don't know. Some movies, uh, some movies take that long. Um, the other thing I stumbled across today, and I, I knew this was a thing, just while we're in <laughs> movies of books we've read by authors we know. Yeah. Um, I was on IMDb trying to figure out what uh, what movie I'd seen somebody in, and I came across the the list for the Incurables, the the John Bassoff novel. So I don't know if that's oh really in production or, or what's going on with it. But yeah, that movie I know I'd seen him post something about it going to be a movie, but it became a little bit uh, a little bit more real with you know the IMDb page and. And, you know, and seeing some some names on there. And again, somebody, I don't remember what I was watching. Um, not, not an actor yeah. I know very well, but I was like, what's this guy in? And then, of course, that was at the top of the list because it's not out yet. Right. So it was, uh, it was interesting to see. It's nice to see some people that we've, uh, you know, that we've had on the show in one way or another. We've reviewed their books and stuff. You know, it's good to see them have some uh, some success. Yeah, especially right now, it seems like everybody, like, so uh, Jeff Vandermeer's uh, Annihilation. Yep. 
is I think done. Yeah, there's a trailer for that. I saw a trailer for that. It looks pretty sick. Yeah. It, it it looks pretty wild. And then um Bird Box keeps getting new author or new actors. Why do I keep saying authors? Because it's like we're a book review podcast. Um, the movie Bird Box keeps getting new actors added to it. So that seems to be moving along as well. And we're buddy buddy with Josh Mallerman. So uh, it seems like everybody gets a movie lately. It's like Oprah showed up on our podcast <laughs> nice. and was like, um, I, did I, get did, a movie? I did figure out who the actor was. Kirk Acevedo. Um, and I only mentioned that because he was in Fringe. You would know him from Fringe. He was the. Uh, the like slightly older Hispanic. Um, oh, the yeah, the partner yeah. to yeah, yeah. So he's that's, good. That's like showing him. up under his uh, his disco- uh, discography, his filmography, his acting credits is uh, that he is tied to that project. That's dude. Seriously, like everything. And now I'm thinking, why do we ever make a book review podcast? We could just like be patient and be the movie review <laughs> podcast for the shit that you know. <laughs> Just wait a few years. I was just wondering how we don't and, have our own movie yet. Yeah. Two podcasters yeah, point. get involved in something to do with the publishing industry. I I, I don't know. I'm going to have to work on that. I'm going to have to work on the, the script like, for that. Would it be a Devil Wears Prada style, like Rags to Riches? That, that, I would be okay with that. I would be okay with yeah. that. I mean, we, we, we have made hundred of dollars doing this podcast for six years. So, yeah. All the way to the triple digits. Yep. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if there's much else that's going on in the book world that uh, that Merritt's talking about right now. Um, I was in. Can I talk about my visit to Barnes and Noble? Uh, you know, you could. You had. You deserve to talk about a couple of your brick and mortar experiences from this past weekend. <sighs> so I'm reading. I'm reading The Savage by Frank Bill. It's a book that we just reviewed, and. Um, <laughs> I decide I'm kind of getting squirrely because I, I, I've been just sitting around reading and I feel like I need to get out, and get some fresh air. So I decide I'm reading the um, advanced digital copy that we got. And I was thinking, oh, yeah, it'd be nice if I uh, if I had a print copy of this, because like for the, um, you know, there's certain authors I just like to have their books on the shelf and I've got Frank's other stuff. So I'm like, I'm going to go to Barnes and Noble. It's like 10 minutes away. I haven't gone into a Barnes and Noble in a long time. Um, I drive over there and I'm walking around and this book, it came out Tuesday and it's Saturday. So like this should be prominently displayed somewhere, if not prominently displayed, shelved where the author, his name would, would appear, right? Not a copy in the whole goddamn store. Yeah, that's a little nuts. I was going to say, yeah, there's like a new and noteworthy section. I would definitely believe with the accolades that Donnie Brook got that this should certainly easily, even if you, you haven't read it or, or whatever, you know, it would fall into that. But they, yeah. Yeah. And it's not like, not is, is I'm assuming you went to the one yeah. that, that I, I think you went to the one not far from your home. Correct. Yeah. So big disappointment. And then I just walked around. First of all, did you know bookstores don't have horror sections? Um, you know, I know that Barnes and Noble doesn't have a horror section. When Borders was around, they did have a horror section. And um, what's that other used book chain? I know they have one. Uh, oh, is it books? Half price, half books. price books, half price books. Yeah, yeah, they have a horror section, but no, Barnes and Noble never has, which makes it difficult to find. You know, yeah, yeah. horror. <laughs> uh, it's like, where does Stephen King go? Um, he goes in sci-fi fantasy, I guess. But anyway, so like I just got angrier as I walked around and I'm, I'm looking at these bullshit books and, and uh, like 
it seems like the the percentage of real estate in that store that is dedicated to actual fiction is just chipped away like year over year and and i i can't i can i can never find a book that you know that we talk about so i just got really angry and i was like you know what this isn't the biggest barnes and noble i know that there's one nearby bigger maybe i can go there and uh um this is the one for for you it's the lincolnshire one livius i know that we've gone there a couple times mm-hmm. or whatever yep. And so I'm like, all right, I got nothing to do. I'm just going to, you know, grab some Starbucks and drive over to this other one. And I drive over to the other one and it's not even a Barnes and Noble anymore. It's a goddamn like medical office. Oh, that's good to know. Cause that, that is on my list of <sighs> Barnes and Nobles I might go to if I desperately needed, you know, a tangible book. Yeah. I think my suspicion, cause it is across the, the street from like a massive complex of like elderly assisted living. Maybe they just needed more medical care in the area. Better business in that area than selling books. (laughs) Yeah. Good Lord. Um, So uh, then I got pissed and in my, like at the parking lot, got on my phone, went to Amazon, ordered the book. It'll be here tomorrow. And, and I feel like that's like a loss because I like the idea of a brick and mortar bookstore. And I like the idea of walking into a place and just that instant gratification of this is what I want. I'm going to pay someone for it. I'm going to take it home. Yeah. I mean, I work in retail, man. And and it's scary yeah. to see the the direction that uh, the people are going in because waiting two days um, is less of a big deal than it used to be. Um, but I mean, God, I can't, I couldn't, I mean, I'm in, if instant gratification is available, which is how I prefer to read all my books, right? Kindle. So that's, you know, it takes like yeah. 10 seconds for that thing to load after you hit the buy now button. But more and more people, myself included, are turning to uh, are turning to the Internet uh, to, to obtain our wares. And it, uh, it does not bode well for those of us who are dependent on a physical retail location for our uh, for our income until we get to that riches part that we have to write for our movie. So and then I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, this isn't the that wasn't the only experience I had. Oh, do tell weekend another experience at, a, at an unnamed <laughs> retailer. Yeah, an unnamed retailer. Um, I have. Uh, I'm very particular about um, the ballpoint pens that I use, so I like to use Sharpie pens a lot. But when I'm using ballpoint pens, um, I really only want to use a Parker Jotter. And um, and again, today I'm reading a lot, and so I just wanted to kind of break up the day, go get some coffee, and then I stopped into an unnamed uh, retail location that I had always bought these these pens at um, to get it to, to buy a fucking pen that I know that they used to sell, and I I must have spent like I spent enough time walking back and forth up and down that little pen section. Well, first, the first thing I, I, I recognized was that like they're it's sectioned off based on like, these are the gel pens and these are the ballpoint pens. And the signs did not line up with what was stationed where at all. Cause like the ballpoints was just filled with gel pens. And I was like, well, let's move these signs around anyway. Um, I couldn't find it. I found the refills. They sell the refills of ink, but I, I couldn't find the pen. Um, and finally this dude comes over and to his credit, that dude was super nice and cheerful, which I was not expecting. And I was like, yeah, just looking for Parker Jotter. And he's like, yeah, sorry, man. We don't carry those anymore. We have the refills. (laughs) Oh, you're that guy. (laughs) (laughs) 
we sell this other pen like the brand is cross or something like cross that pens are really nice uh and i was like all right i grabbed me some sharpie pens and i used apple pay at the register which i'm really excited about because i have that new iphone and there's no like fingerprint button so what you have to do is like it scans your face to authorize you to make a payment so it's like click click look at my phone and then i made a payment with with my face <laughs> Not, I'm not trying to change change the subject, um, <laughs> but I'm going to change the subject a little bit. I've been using Android Pay a lot, um, nice. which there's only like three places I go to. Um, uh, the place that you were at today takes Android Pay, the the pen <laughs> place. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, Android does like like cutesy things. Like I used it when I was in New Orleans, um, and when I got the confirmation of the payment, there's you know a little check mark that loads at the top of the page. There's like a little animation. Well, all of a sudden I go, what's happening? The animation was like a little bat because it was Halloween. And then like the next time I used it, it was like a little ghost. And they were all the the Android, I don't even know what they're called, you know, the little Android guy, like dressed as different Halloween things. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're doing a Justice League one right now. And it's not that I care, because I'm not a huge Justice League movie fan. You know, I grew up with that stuff and I think it's really cool and I like those characters, but I'm not like completely sold on this franchise of movies. They're doing the characters from that as little Android mascots. But they keep giving me the Flash over and over and over again. And apparently, in order to save the world, I have to collect the other four. So I'm desperate because, I mean, saving the world is now on my shoulders, right? Me using Android Pay. And because it's not a lot of exertion on my point, I will help save the world. Today I got Batman, but it didn't load in my little checklist. So I actually had to submit feedback. Android pay to tell them that it wasn't working right. That not only do I keep getting the flash when I finally got Batman, it, it didn't load into my list. So I'm I'm waiting to hear back from Google. I'll I'll keep you guys updated if anything develops. <laughs> That's tragic. Yeah, that is. Uh, I would be disappointed if I were you. That would I would I would give that feedback. Feedback. I, I do really like paying um paying with the phone. Yeah, it's great. It's the wave of the future, yeah. man. I, I yeah. So at any rate, um, <laughs> do you got big Thanksgiving plans? Um, family yeah. stuff. Just spend time with my uncle at my uncle's house. I plan on getting through um, Mind Hunters on Thanksgiving. That's my plan. Ooh, uh-huh. nice. Yep. Nice. So I I do work in retail as well, and um, I don't have to go in and work on Thanksgiving Day. So. I'm pretty proud of that. Pretty happy about I that. I don't either. Um, your your location's not open, I'm assuming, right? They, yeah, they're not open on Here's, Thanksgiving. You know, again, for those of you who aren't in retail, you can't even understand this. Like, It's important for me to keep <laughs> my thumb on the pulse of retail to know things like who's going to be open. So really, you know, your 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 targets opening, um, Best Buy or Best Buy's opening Thursday night. You know, you've got a, a few retailers, but they're all opening. Like Walmart's a twenty four hour thing, right? So they're open all the time anyway. But they're going to launch their Black Friday deals. I think at six p.m. Yeah, watch a regular commercial TV, which is painful. I know you don't do it, and I don't do it very often. <laughs> Fucking like Carson Peary Scott feels the need to be open at like noon on Thanksgiving for some reason. I did. I didn't even know they existed. So. Right. <laughs> so I feel really bad for swinging. their stores when they open and nobody is there because a it's Thanksgiving and b because nobody remembers that they still exist. It was just such a weird. So my company did that for two years where we opened on Thanksgiving night until we figured out that um, 
you know, the, w what's given to us is, you know, like in order to allow our associates to spend time with their families, what it really comes down to is like any retailer is we didn't make enough money. So yeah. Yeah. Go ahead and take the day off. Yeah. Good guy. Good guy store. I'm on the Carson's <laughs> website now. Yeah. And you were wrong. Oh, then who is it that I saw the no, ad for? You, you're wrong in the wrong way. Oh. They open at 11 a.m. <laughs> there we go. Sorry. Okay. I was like, man, I feel bad Even earlier because somebody is working who works for Cars and Periscott is listening. And they're going, oh, shit. Do I have to fucking work on Thanksgiving? I thought nobody <laughs> even knew that we existed anymore. 11 a.m. Uh, can you explain? I mean, I'm looking me? at these sales. You can get up to 70% off of coats for her as a doorbuster. It's just, it's in, I just don't understand because, you know, you've got uh, more companies that are just saying, yeah, screw it. It's not worth it. And, and going to the, to the, um, you know, we're not going to do it. Um, but yeah. then you've got this one that says, we've got to be open the absolute earliest. How's, <laughs> how's 11 a.m. sound? Is anybody open before 11 a.m.? That's yeah. That's it's insanity. So fucking weird. Yeah. I, 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 I don't. <sighs> No, thank you. Carson's and and they're not gonna like you said, they're not gonna do any business that day. Uh, There's gonna you be know, like you really can't people you doing doorbusters. Yeah, you, oh, they've got a guest jacket. Um, you can't underestimate the power of twenty dollar rampage boots, I guess, is on the front cover. <laughs> I, I don't know. There are <laughs> there will be sentence I never thought I'd hear you utter. Rob, there will be people there. Now, I'm, I'm very tempted to go to a local Carson's <laughs> to just to see how many, but I'm not going to because that's just yeah. as stupid as going into shop there. But I'm telling you, they will have some people. Have we talked about how much I hate the term doorbuster? I don't, I, I don't think we've ever talked about how All much right, you hate so the term doorbuster. Welcome to Sold, our retail podcast. <laughs> um, Retailed. It, it bothers me. In so many ways, because everything's a doorbuster now, right? And, and they're not even like, it's not even Black Friday anymore. You'll see like a summer doorbuster sale somewhere. And even when it's yeah. something I'm into, I go, yeah, that's an okay deal. But really, the, the term is so overused. But it also upsets me on a, on a different side. And although this maybe has calmed down a little bit, there was a rash of instant instances over the last 10 years where people became violent and it became dangerous to shop on Black Friday, <laughs> yep. right? So literal doorbusters calling, but calling your product a doorbuster almost implies a, a little bit of violence, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah. So yeah, That's it upsets sure. me. First of all, it's, it's completely misused. I don't remember where I, I remember. God, it was like last year I was driving somewhere. I think I saw like a doorbuster sale on like tires for your car. And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck, man? Really? Who is breaking down your door to get new radials? Like, I don't, I don't understand. How you can call that a doorbuster? Got to get them all weathers. Uh, yeah, I'm with you on the doorbuster term. Just needs to get retired. Um, it, it's yeah. I, I think I, I don't know. I don't even know. I'm I, I've worked in retail long enough to just be completely beat down by the concept of Black Friday. Um, but oh, holy shit, hold on. Uh -oh. I'm just exiting out of the Carson page, but down at the bottom, I happen to notice. Carson's featured several special coupons in their Black Friday ad. With one, you could take $10 off any item that was $10 or more. <laughs> All so right. Essentially, they're going to open at 11 a.m. On, on, oh, it's right, real big in their print ad, too. Um, yeah, to give away stuff. Great. Uh, 
I don't know. Maybe that works. Maybe someone's getting fired at, at Carson's, which we didn't know still existed. <sighs> anyway. I don't know, man. I'm just glad that uh, with my new job, I pretty much am, am insulated from all that shenanigans. I um I, I imagine are are you working on Black Friday? Yeah, but I won't be right. I just yeah. didn't see a purpose for you going to work on Black Friday. I guess I was trying to say like only because I have like enough work to do. Yeah. yeah, I will be working on Black Friday, but not until uh, seven in the morning. So yeah. I'm all good with that. Anyway, I'm going to go buy beer on Thanksgiving on Black Friday. Frank Bill, if you're listening, seriously, we were done talking about your book like half hour ago. You can just tune out because now we're just talking about buying beer and like when we work and next yeah, time we start to about that coworker who doesn't shower often enough. And <laughs> yeah, we really all right. We're pretty much done. We I just yeah I think we just this is this is more or less what happens once we say keep reading After the podcast. Yeah. Then we start talking about our schedules and buying beer. It's another and, trend too. So I finished watching Stranger Things, um, season two of Stranger Things, which if you haven't seen it, is, is uh, in my opinion, better than season one of Stranger Things. Hmm. They now have an after the show thing where they do like, yeah. it's really weird because they release it all at once. So I don't know how you're supposed to watch those. Like, are you supposed to watch an episode, then go watch that, then watch it? Because <laughs> I can't see anybody doing that. Right, right. Because it automatically plays the next episode. Right. So maybe that's what we do is we... Do the podcast. <laughs> Beyond Booked. Yeah, and then we do Beyond Booked afterwards, which is just like 15 minutes of us talking about like when we work and what kind of shit's going on in our lives and what retailer we're mad at this week. And All right, tweet at Booked Podcast. Let us know if you want to hear the Beyond Booked. Uh, it's probably going to be boring, right? Well, I'm Maybe. listen, I take part in the conversations and I'm bored. Right. Yeah. Wait, is that a shot at me? <laughs> No, it's not. All right. It's just really it's mundane conversations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know, but like, yeah, sometimes I can't tell the difference between the podcast and our normal conversations. So, all right. Maybe. Anyway. So, yeah, tweet at Book Podcast if you want to hear Beyond Booked or if you have a better name for it, too. That, that would be okay. That's it for uh, this week, Rob. Uh, happy Thanksgiving to you. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving to you and to all of our listeners that Absolutely. celebrate it. I guess. I don't know. Unless you don't celebrate. It was funny because it came up in conversation. I was at a work thing and we were doing like an icebreaker and it was like, tell us about like Thanksgiving traditions, like your family that maybe are a little weird or whatever. So of course nobody has anything really weird, but they get to me and I'm like, um, I grew up in an Eastern European household. We really didn't celebrate Thanksgiving because <laughs> it's true. Not everybody celebrates it. Thanks for your culturally sensitive icebreaker. Oh, I know. I, uh, I we'll, we'll get beyond beyond booked. We'll talk more about, about some of the indignities I have to suffer at this American <laughs> system of, of uh, workplace chatter. <laughs> oh no! Now you're oppressed. You get Jesse on beyond booked. <laughs> Social justice warrior Jesse. Have a happy and safe Thanksgiving, and <laughs> we'll see you next week. Uh, I'm Livia Snedden. I'm Rob Olson. Keep reading. Beyond Booked.